0: We are putting out almost 500 Freedom of Information Act requests, and some of them are going to require fees. And if I don't have, you know, the resources to pay for the data, then I also don't have a story.
1: Data privacy laws in schools were intended to protect students, but over time, they've made it increasingly difficult for families and journalists to access critical information. I'm Amelia Brust and this is It's All Journalism. You're listening to It's All Journalism, a podcast about people who make the news. I'm Amelia Brust, substituting for our regular host Michael O'Connell, and with me today is Sarah Gannam, a former CNN investigative reporter and a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who is now a fellow at the Brechner Center for Freedom of Information. She's working with students at the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications to tackle the subject of data deserts. And Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show
0: with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you today.
1: So before we start talking about your fellowship, I do think we really need to just remind people why exactly you became the third youngest journalist to ever win a Pulitzer back in 2012.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is a story that is really one of those that permeated the normal 24-hour news cycle and, and really made an impact on people's minds and changed a lot of viewpoints about the topic of sexual abuse. It was the scandal involving Jerry Sandusky and Penn State University and Wow. I mean, even I didn't see it coming the way that it played out and on the, the enormous scale that it played out and all of the different threads that led to different investigations and how many different lives it touched and how many years now, the past that we still talk about it. You know, it's a story that has not been completely told at this point. There are things, there are aspects of it that are still breaking today as we speak. And so it was sort of what people always talk about this, but it was absolutely true. The combination of incredible luck and being in the right place in the right time, but also being prepared in that I had lived and worked in that town for many years and had really a great source base there and was able to stay one step ahead of everybody else when they came into town to report on this story, I was able to stay one day ahead and really keep moving the story forward and shifting focus to places where people might otherwise not be looking. And that was what made us successful in reporting that story.
1: Yeah. And I mean, even when it came to just being one step ahead of everyone, you were You were literally one step ahead of your own paper when you joined the Patriot News, which you you talked about this at the Journalism and Women's Symposium last month, which is where we met. And if you don't mind, I really would love to just hear again how you kind of reverse engineered your way into covering (laughs) this story for the Patriot News when you had already kind of been covering it. Okay, you tell it, because I just love this story so much.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is one of those, like, it belongs in a movie script, I guess, kind of story. I was 22, 23 years old, probably 22 years old when I first heard about uh, the allegation. At the time, it was a singular allegation against Jerry Sandusky. Uh, You have to remember, if you aren't familiar with him, he had a children's charity. And so the allegation that he was or had abused a child in his home during a sleepover was significant to me as a crime reporter because... Anytime you have a person with a children's charity who is accused of abusing a child, I mean, that is significant. Forget the fact that he was this revered, retired football coach who everybody saw as one of the key players in in Penn State winning its championships uh, decades prior. He, you know, was a philanthropist, a community man. He was really seen as, you know, this just do-gooder in Pennsylvania. And he had won you know, all these numerous awards. He had been recognized by a former president. He was sort of untouchable. And I was unable to crack this story to figure out if this investigation was even really happening when I was at the local paper in State College. It's called the Center Daily Times. It was 2009, 10. The economy wasn't doing that great. The newspaper economy was doing less great. And we just didn't have the resources to devote to it. That said, I absolutely loved my job. I loved everything about it. I was the crime and courts reporter. I was, you know, single and young and just like running around town. Like this was my whole life was reporting on crime. And I had a a police scanner at my bedside. I would run out in the middle of the night to cover stuff. I had no intention of leaving this paper, no matter how small it was or how little money we made. But, I did hear that the bigger paper about 90 miles away had also heard about Jerry Sandowski and this allegation, and I did not want to get scooped. So I went on the job interview to find out what they knew. And that was my only reason for going. And, you know, I sat through the interview and I ended up really liking the editors. And I was starting to think to myself, like, these could be good people to work for, but, you know, I'm here for a purpose. I got to find out what they know. So as we were driving back from the restaurant, where we ate lunch, I remember my editor Kate Barron sitting in the back seat of the car. I was sitting in the front, and I turned around, and I looked at her, and I said, "Okay, what do you guys know about Jerry Sandusky?" She just about like fell over in the car because <laughs> she was just like, "What?" Huh? You know, and she started kind of rambling, which I know Kate now, and it was like <laughs> her nervous sort of response. You know, she just started saying, "Oh, you know, his mom, and we heard, and we sent someone." She worked at a hospital in Lewistown, and all of these facts had made no sense to me. They were completely irrelevant to the, to the victim who I knew about. And I was thinking in my head, you know, this doesn't make any sense. And I realized they know of a different victim, so there are two victims. This is not the victim I'm aware of. And when I started to realize that, that this was more than just one case, more than one incident, more than one year. I started to realize they were decades apart, well, at least a decade apart. I thought, okay, this is maybe kind of a big deal. And it helped that I really had a good time on my visit and I enjoyed the interview and I thought it would be a good place to work. And so when they offered me the job a couple of weeks later, I took it. And my first day, I went in and you know, get to work on my crime beat there. And they pulled me into a meeting with about thirty people and they said, Okay, now you have to tell us what you know (laughs) too. And so that was how we got started.
1: They were like, Okay, now let's it's game time. Let's go for real.
0: Yeah, and it really was game time in that they really did give me time, which was the most valuable resource I could ask for. It wasn't even money that I needed. I just needed time. And knock on doors and call people and brainstorm and figure out unconventional ways of getting to the bottom of this. We didn't necessarily go into it even thinking that, you know, this guy must be guilty or anything like that. We just wanted to know, is he really under investigation or not? You know, these rumors had been swirling at this point for years and it didn't seem to necessarily be going anywhere or maybe it was and we didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. Generally, a criminal investigation does not have as many false starts as that one did. And so the goal was really just to figure out, okay, who has testified before this grand jury? Is this a real investigation? Are the correct resources being put into figuring out if, you know, these allegations are real? And all of that, you know, once we started really pouring time into it, only took about three months to figure out before we could write our first story.
1: Like you're saying, like, time is one of the biggest gifts you can possibly give an investigative reporter, no matter what the story is. Just giving them the the space to work through all of the little details that may come along and figure out, you know, what pieces of the puzzle are missing. Like, it's sometimes it's not only about knowing who to talk to or knowing what questions to ask. It's just literally having the time to sort through the information you already have.
0: Yeah, I mean it's time to knock on doors. It's time to let, you know, interviews breathe and allow your brain to sort of work through these topics and piece together these timelines without the interruption of breaking news every day. You know, there was breaking news that I covered during that time frame, but it wasn't the constant wait, can you do this today? You can work on that tomorrow, which I think often happens in newsrooms. You have to find your own time to do these investigative pieces. So maybe that's 15 minutes every day at the end of your day. That's 15 minutes later that you're getting home to your kids, you know, or a half a day on Saturday every week. Well, you know, that wears on you. And eventually the work does suffer because it is sometimes really hard to step away from that daily news cycle. And that was the gift that they gave me. Now, not to say that, you know, sometimes you don't need, money to investigate big stories. For example, what I'm doing now at the Breckner Center absolutely costs money. We are putting out almost 500 Freedom of Information Act requests. And some of them are going to require fees. And if I don't have, you know, the resources to pay for the data, then I also don't have a story. So It just so happened that in the Sandusky story, which is often true with the local news, time was the most valuable thing. So
1: what do you think this work at the Breckner Center can maybe do in the way you guys are going to be tackling data deserts or at least trying to examine data deserts? But first of all, I guess we should clarify what you mean when you say data desert, because there's a couple different interpretations of that term.
0: Yeah. So, from my perspective, for this project, a data desert is an area where there is a lack of information. Where, you know, if you are common sense would dictate that there should be information. For example, one of the topics we're looking at is concussions in NCAA sports. There has been so much talk over the last five, six years about the improvement on health and safety of athletes and paying attention to concussions. We often hear this narrative that schools are doing a better job of reacting to them, treating players who suffer from concussions, and keeping track of how they happen and and how often they happen. However, we come to learn that this is actually an area where there is a bit of a data desert, where schools are not required to uniformly track anything. And so we're finding that voluntarily some schools are doing it and some schools are not. And the schools that are doing it are often not doing it the same way that other schools are doing it. And then if they are doing it, they're often not sharing it in the same way that another school is. So how is that helpful to the student-athlete? And that's what we're looking at is, you know, this lack of consistency on a topic where there's a pretty strong narrative in favor of schools And the NCAA, how is the data we assume should be there? How is it lacking and how does that hurt student athletes? So that's just one example of a data desert. If I can't, you know, go to some database somewhere and just look up, you know, how many concussions were recorded at a certain university on a certain team in a certain semester, that's hurting research, it's hurting the public's knowledge, of the topic, and it's hurting progress on that topic.
1: And what other areas are you maybe looking for gaps in available data or inconsistencies in data reporting tactics?
0: So our whole entire theme is education and secrecy around education. So we're tackling some of the hottest issues that we talk about when we talk about educating our kids. And how data is lacking in those areas where you would hope there are common sense would dictate that you would be able to figure out what the statistics look like, what the field looks like. Another one, you know, that would be, you know, is a really strong example is something that I've been reporting on for years, which is hazing at college fraternities. If you're a parent and your son comes to you and says, I want to join this fraternity at this school, then you want to do your due diligence. It is nearly impossible at most schools to find out if that fraternity has a history of misconduct. There are very few number of schools that actually post narrative descriptions of past misconduct at specific fraternities that are related to their campuses. But in most cases, you can be really proactive parent and still not know what kind of place this is that your son might spend a, a good part of his time at. And on top of that, a lot of schools, Really overcorrect the narrative and put out so much positive material about the fraternities, which probably is ninety percent true, except they're not honest about the other ten percent. And so that's another place where we're looking at data desert.
1: So how long do you have to complete your work and and to produce these projects for the fellowship?
0: It's a year-long fellowship, so by the end of the spring semester, I'm hoping that we have our stories ready. And then I'll be sort of handing off to the next fellow.
1: Okay. So what do you think is probably going to be the biggest challenge or what at this point do you foresee being the biggest obstacle in getting back data or putting together some final reports?
0: There's a couple of things that we're looking at. And I actually think that the fact that they are – problems is going to end up being the story right <laughs> yeah. so if we can't get the data the next best thing is to explain why and that actually sometimes is the better story one is going to be privacy laws you know there's a lot of overuse of the laws that that protect or are meant to protect student privacy a lot of times they're used to protect institutions and the information that they don't want to get out And even when they have nothing to do with any kind of identifying information, they are kept secret under the false premise that, you know, it needs to be kept secret because of, for privacy reasons. And so that's one, one obstacle I foresee will come Mm -hmm. up. Another one is going to be fees. It's going to be money. You know, a lot of times collecting the data, we understand that it costs money. A lot of times it costs an astronomical amount of money that someone who is, you know, either in a local newsroom, even in a national news organization, forget the average citizen can't afford thousands of dollars to compile data. And so then it doesn't exist because of that barrier. And so that's another thing we're going to be looking at.
1: What do you think could then be done after you guys produce these reports? Because, oh, I say we're taught, but like the sort of the mantra of, solutions journalism for example which is supposed to have like a community bent but always stresses like don't just go in there to tell people there's a problem go in there to also help you know readers and communities find a solution to those problems so what solutions do you think will probably come out of this like whether it just be new school district you know policies or if it's you think it's going to take like parents and you know community members actually like asking or, or demanding that the school districts make this data more, more readily available to them?
0: I think we're going to see that it's going to take some change in some laws in order for this kind of information to be not just compiled, but made readily available and consistently reported. I think that there are some places where they're trying to do the right thing, but it's so inconsistent from even school to school forget state to state that getting a big picture look at an issue is nearly impossible it's very hard you know for example if you can't define a problem how do you track it and so those are the the sort of issues we'll be tackling within each one of these topics
1: have you gotten to speak with any any individual schools yet have you been able to speak with any like district superintendents or anyone to to get a sense of if they actually want to be better tracking this data, but they just don't have like the resources or the manpower
0: to do it? We are just in the beginning of this project. So, of course, that's something that we plan to do. And we're getting the sense from folks on the ground in a few places that this is a frustrating thing for them. But I can't say that we fully reported this out yet. So you well, everyone will have to stay tuned on that on that front.
1: Okay. That's to our listeners that's a cliffhanger. So definitely make <laughs> sure you guys follow back with the center and stay tuned to that reporting later on. So but this is also not going to be the first time that you've worked with students you've taught in the past and I wanted to also ask you, you know, what's changed since Maybe you were in journalism school and the first time you, you taught students to what you're teaching them now, because presumably some of the things that you're kind of helping them do in the classroom now are, are some newer tactics that maybe you're also learning at the same time.
0: It's really helpful in a tough job market to elevate yourself by kind of being a jack-of-all-trades under the journalism umbrella. And journalism is journalism, whether it be on TV, on a podcast, in social media form, in a traditional newspaper. It's all the same journalism. It's just about understanding what works best in a visual medium versus an audio medium versus a print medium versus a social medium. And so good journalists, good student journalists, good professional journalists, once they get those skill sets, they're going to figure it out really quickly and be successful.
1: Right. And I uh, also wanted to kind of ask you just maybe you, you remember a time that was particularly challenging to get data on one of your stories and maybe how you got around it. If You know, you had to talk to just the right person or maybe you guys had to appeal a denial of your FOIA or something like that. Do you remember a case like that that was particularly tough for you or for you and your colleagues?
0: Yeah. I mean, I would say that there's a couple of examples I could pull up in the files of my brain, but it always, for me, you know, FOIAs are great and they have many times produced really interesting information for my stories. But for me, it's always fallen back on people and talking to people and getting context from them and also impact and emotion from them. And When I run into those brick walls, when it comes to documents and and data, I can always fall back on good old-fashioned interviews and reporting by talking to the people who were involved, and that's always been something that has worked for me and I think works for for everyone who's who's willing to sort of step beyond those documents. When
1: you've gone into, like, a new area of reporting, like, for example, when you changed papers, but you were still, like, a crime reporter, do you remember, like, if you kind of first tried to introduce yourself to, you know, the same kind of officials who you knew you're going to be working with again, and maybe also when you went to CNN, like, did you kind of have to do that, like, figure out first off, who am I going to have to go to later on to get data or to get, you know, this information, I should introduce myself up front?
0: With public information officers? Mm -hmm. or. are you talking just about sourcing in general? I guess
1: more specifically with, like, you know, with the public information officers that you knew you were going to probably be dealing with most often. How would you go about introducing yourself to them for the first time?
0: In circumstances where you're on a beat and you're constantly talking to people, yes, you know, the traditional, let me take you out for coffee, (laughs) let's... uh, Let's pretend like we're not going to argue about every requests that I make. Uh, you know that, Let's enjoy this that's honeymoon period sort of the for standard. the time being. Right, exactly. That's sort of the standard, right, initial sort of cordial exchange. But you don't always have the ability to foresee who you're going to be requesting from. And and I think if for the most part, you know, public information officers or FOIA officers, you know, they, they take seriously their job. And I think that they're there to look at the law and look at what you're requesting and, and figure out a way to get you what you're asking for or tell you that you can't have it. And we're always going to ask for things and maybe push it a little bit more. And of course there are, there are plenty of examples of times that I think I asked for something that I had the right to see that I didn't get. And so, you know, that's where the mechanisms that exist in the law come in and we can sue for that and, hope that you have a favorable outcome. Sometimes you don't, though, you know. And like I said, that's where I think that the sourcing comes in and the in interviewing real people really becomes the fallback.
1: I think it'll be interesting to see as you guys go through your reporting. I would be curious to know if it kind of turns out that even though FOIAs are meant to be used by anyone. It's not just for journalists. Anyone can use them. I did always kind of wonder when I covered schools, if I were a parent asking these same questions, if I would have better luck at getting getting the information I was looking for versus being a reporter.
0: Well, of course, it shouldn't be that way, right? But, you know, I think anytime someone gets denied, they think it's because of who they are. Mm-hmm. And I think it, you, would, you would find a lot of parents who would think, but they're not getting information because they're just a parent. You know, it's really about how the laws are being interpreted, if they're being interpreted correctly, and if they're being overused by institutions. And that's really our goal in this case, is to really take a hard look and examine whether or not the laws that are in place with the intent to protect students, to protect the vulnerable, to protect the victims, are being used instead to protect the institution. And therefore, it's hurting those same vulnerable groups that it should be protecting. And that's really the goal of our project.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like how FOIAs are kind of meant to be like, it's not meant to say what you can get. It's meant to say what you can't get. Like, the burden of proof is supposed to be on the government institution that holds the records. It's not really meant to be up to the requester to prove why they're deserving of this
0: information. But a lot of times it doesn't feel like that's the case, right? No. And, and I think that's a frustration of a lot of people who frequently make requests, and certainly a lot of journalists. Before we go today, you had mentioned before
1: when we last spoke that you had some other projects kind of kicking around. Just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about any of them if you if you feel comfortable sharing that.
0: Oh well, sure. I mean, what do you want to what do you want to know about? I, I'm I'm focused right now a lot on other than this data deserts project at breckner i'm really i'm doing a lot of reporting right now on on drinking water in america it's mm-hmm. something that i covered when i was at cnn i really feel strongly that it is an undercover topic and so i'm working on some projects related to that let's see what else i mean that's it's quite a, it's quite a bit actually right now that i've got going on so i think those are the two main ones you know i've always been interested in regulatory issues and um and so the overreach of government in, well, like I said, in privacy aspects, but also environmental areas. So, yeah, I've got some things brewing, but they're not quite they're not quite ready for publication yet. That's for sure. I've got a lot of reporting to do
1: on the the drinking water reporting. What is sort of the focus that you've sort of honed in on with that? And is there some particular geographic area that you're kind of focused on with that or you're just kind of looking at the management of it as a system in, in government or what?
0: I'm looking at the people. The people in America whose stories you would think came out of the third world who not only don't have access to drinking water but can't figure out how to get access to clean drinking water. They have identified the problem in many cases but they can't fix it. And it's because there's a lack of motivation and a lack of funding to address this infrastructure issue that is beginning to touch millions of people all across the country from all walks of life and all kinds of situations. And so my reporting is really focused on how government is failing them and how we're headed toward potentially a massive environmental crisis when it comes to the most necessary element for sustaining life. But really the story is about people. It's about what they're up against when they're trying to get safe water.
1: Just kind of a a very technical question I want to ask you. When you're writing stories that are very data heavy, do you kind of prefer to start with that sort of narrative approach and start with the individual person and then like expand out to like, and here's the bigger picture, here's the whole scope of what's happening or do you kind of like to let the data lead off the story?
0: I don't think that there's a hard and fast rule here. You know, I think every story is different. And some stories, the data is so powerful that it is its own character. And you can run with that and and go with it. I you know, I had another once tell me on a very heavy, you know, data heavy story where I put out, I think, thirty FOIAs and got back information. And the information was so compelling to me that I led with it. And he said, you'll never get any attention with this story if you don't lead with a person. And, you know, generally speaking, that may be true, but journalism is in general, you know, every story is different and it deserves (laughs) deserves more than to be put into a formula. And so I do feel strongly that character-driven stories are important. And I think that on topics that are really technical and not sexy at all, people need the sugar on their broccoli. You know, They need to care about the characters, the people that are affected in order to be drawn in. And then once they're drawn in and they care about those characters, then they listen to the sort of boring facts that back up the story. So I I wholeheartedly believe in that. But I also believe that those characters can look, different than than we often think of them as being you know data can be a character and in that case that editor was wrong and the story did (laughs) just fine it made quite an impact with the lead that I wrote (laughs) so you know it's dependent on what you're what you're doing what you're talking about
1: do you want to reveal what that story was or who that editor was
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to reveal who the, who the bad editor was, okay. but um, but the story was about reading levels of college athletes. And in that particular case, there were very strong characters in that story, but I, I wanted to lead with the data. Yeah,
1: I think education is unique in that way that the data that you're almost always talking about in in education stories is something that everybody can already kind of you know, identify with and that's kids. It's kids' lives. It's kids, you know, health or kids' grades or kids' attendance or things like that. But I think the fact that you guys at the Breckner Center are going to be focused on educational data, I think, will really help both in terms of expressing the importance of having this data available and also showing the connection between the numbers in the spreadsheet and the real human beings that those numbers represent.
0: Well, thanks. We're excited about it, too.
1: Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a great chat, and I really wish you and your team all the best. And I can't wait to see what sort of work you guys produce. I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me on today. And I love chatting about journalism. Anytime you'd like to chat, you can have me back. It's been a pleasure. You've been
1: listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. And while you're there, you can also sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy writes our web content. Nick Dubray wrote our theme music. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And our host is Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. I'm Amelia Brust, and thanks for listening.